Okay, here we are once again, August the 23rd, 2015, lecture discussion number 209 on the Book of Romans. And uh, we are continuing to shovel our way through our most recent pile, which is Mark 11 and 12. These seven or eight, depending on how you count, I say eight, some do not, but eight uh, pieces of Mark 11 and 12 that go in order, as you know by now, I hope, and how they're all interrelated. That's uh, what we've got on the table, and it is a big pile, as I just said. If you've been absent the last few Sundays, and I know some of you are coming back from having uh, eventful summers, I left off kind of last week with the pillar of salt. Because ultimately, I am solving Matthew 11 and 12 in order to get us back to Luke 17, which gets us back to Romans 11. So that's how this all works, in case you've lost track by now. But the point of that is that last week I said the pillar of salt is positioned alongside the pillar of cloud. So the pillar of salt is the first mention in Genesis 19, the first mention of the word pillar. So when I see that, I have to go ahead immediately and begin to position it alongside with the subsequent pillars. And that would be, uh, uh, obviously, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, Exodus 33.9. So if you are beginning to evaluate what is going on with Lot's wife, absent of uh, Exodus 33.9, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire... Um, then you're going to find yourself in difficulty. It's long been considered that the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, given to God, given by God to his nation of Israel, the purpose of which was to do what? It was to guide and protect them. And it's long been determined and considered that that is a typification or that typifies the Holy Spirit. So the pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, that is a picture or a symbol, if you will, of the Holy Spirit guiding his nation of Israel uh, as they go through their desert wilderness journey. So far, so good. And never leaving them, by the way. Never leaves them. So, too, the Holy Spirit of God never leaves his saved us in our wilderness journey. So you see that connection immediately. And Israel is led by the, the pillar of cloud, led by the pillar of fire. So, therefore, it is never in the dark. It's protected at all times. We're also led by the Spirit, our journey likewise lighted. Okay, so far I hope that all makes sense. The pillar of cloud fire was a manifestation of God himself. Ezekiel shows us a glimpse of what was inside of it. If you read uh, Ezekiel, you see that Christ is inside the pillar of cloud on his throne, surrounded by the cherubim uh, and all of the all of the incredible sights that were inside that cloud. God overshadows then his nation. He is hovering above them, going before them, dwelling with them. And Israel did not move unless that pillar moved. So if the pillar didn't move, they camped. Never thought of moving until the cloud moved. And I bring up the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, as you know, because of the pillar of salt. Because of Luke 17.32, where Christ says, ultimately to the nation of Israel, ultimately to the sign of the wife that is the nation of Israel versus the sign of the bride that is the church, the distinction between the two, Christ brings up in 17.32 an end times, end of the age of the Gentile reference, he says, remember Lot's wife. And Lot's wife is established in Scripture as a pillar of salt, Genesis 19.26, and the first mention of pillar again. 
And I know the popular consideration of Lot's wife is that uh, she was condemned by God. And I don't think that that fits the text at all. As you know, if you've been here for a while, I think that case is easily made. And the uh, typical or the conventional wisdom with regard to Lot's wife is insignificant error, unmistakably. And last Sunday, I began the association of Lot's wife with the pillar of cloud slash fire. And logically, I submit then that um, it's advisable to evaluate, remember, Lot's wife within the parameters of the pillar of cloud. So once you decide what the pillar of cloud is and what the pillar of fire is, now you're going to have to evaluate Lot's wife in that context. You gather together all the pillar references, of which there are hundreds in the Bible, and we'll be doing that in the weeks to come, seeing if they relate. And, of course, they all do. That's never a surprise in Scripture. Okay, and that once you've done that, that presents the most obvious of the obvious problems for us to reconcile. What is the relationship between the first mentioned pillar of salt and the extraordinary symbol that is the pillar of cloud, pillar of fire? Because if the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire is a guide and a protector, then what is the pillar of salt? Is it the opposite of that? Is it a contrast? Then he wouldn't have called it a pillar. Is the pillar of salt some sort of guide as well for the nation of Israel? If so, when? When does it guide them? At the end of the age of the Gentiles. Because that's what the 1732 reference to Luke uh, determines. Are they on a journey then? So when is that? If Christ is saying to the Jews at Luke 17, to the faithful remnant at Luke 17 of Israel the faithful remnant of Israel in Luke 17, excuse me, when you are again being in the wilderness, when you are again being pursued by those intent on slaughtering and killing you, when you are surrounded and you have no hope, remember Lot's wife. Remember the pillar of salt. Is that what he's doing? Just as you would see the pillar of cloud overhead, Remember now the pillar of salt. Something about Lot's wife is to be remembered by the nation of Israel when the church is no longer present. What is it? Is it the fact that the church is no longer present? As you know, uh, that, that position is uh, very much defensible. Obviously, we've got a lot, to, a lot of work to do remaining. Having a fundamental understanding of the pillar of salt is going to be of great value to get us through uh, Romans 11. And that's just one piece of our heaping pile from last week, right? So that's the introduction, the recap, if you will. I started to make a list of all the heaping pile of elements here, and uh, I got to two because I didn't have time to do anything else. So, there, But there's at least 15 of them, as you know, just from this uh, diagram or what's left of this diagram on the, on, the, uh, on the Holy Platinum Edition dry erase board. That rotates. Okay. Last Sunday, I suggested that we're going to try to solve this taking or this abduction, if you will, of the donkey foal. That is the sign of the donkey of Mark 11, 1 through 9. And I suggested that that sign of the donkey foal, the lamb is now on top. The lamb of the Passover is now on top of, is upon, is overshadowing, if you will. Do you see how I'm going here? Uh, The donkey foal. And we began to discuss what the donkey 
foal symbolized. And I said that last week that the sign of the donkey foal, the sign of the lamb upon the donkey foal, and the ritual for the cleansing of the, heels, the healed lepers, Leviticus 14. There's a ritual in Leviticus 14. If you're not familiar with it, it's very important to you in Mark 11. That ritual is done every time a leper has been healed. He is sent to the priests and they perform Leviticus 14. And I made the, the case last week that the donkey foal sign and the cleansing leopard, uh, leopard, the cleansing leper sign has never been done in Israel, and that's why they're associated. What I mean by that is that no lepers have ever been healed in the nation of Israel ever until Christ. Luke 4.27. I have thousands and thousands of lepers, maybe tens of thousands, tens of thousands, I'm sure. It's possible hundreds of thousands. None of them ever healed except Naam and the Syrian. No lepers healed. Luke 4.27. None. And therefore, the ceremony of Leviticus 14 never been performed because it's only performed if I have a cleansed leper. Never had one. And that's the way it was thousands of years until Jesus Christ began healing multitudes of lepers. Luke 5, 12 through 15 makes it clear that Christ came and started healing Thousands and thousands and thousands of them. And what did he do? He made sure that all of them went to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees. He sent them to them for their ceremony. Because the religious sects, uh, the religious leaders had the uh, assignment of uh, doing the ceremony. And that would establish the, the uh, lepers then as declaring, if you will, them to be cleansed. Just a side note here. A priest at that time, he had an assignment of verifying the status of lepers. And the other thing that he verified the status of was sacrificial animals. That's among his duties. Uh, God had a purpose for doing that. Obviously, he had. there was no one going to be cleansed of leprosy until Christ came. Leprosy, as you know, is a sign of our own individual sin. Leprosy is a symbol for our sin. So you're seeing this fact that God can cleanse us us of his sins and what Christ did with the lepers. But the priest had a, a job. His job was to say, this leper has been healed. And stamp him, if you will, healed. And send him back into society and he gets his property back that was confiscated by the priesthood. He got it all back. Uh, that's, by the way, the same exact thing. God, knowing, it, God inserted this detail into his scripture involving the priesthood in the inspection process. Their job, again, certified lepers as clean and certified animals as perfect. What they mean by perfect is they have gone through an inspection process, and once they've gone through that process, as you know, if you've been here for a while, they have been determined as perfect for sacrifice. It's called the having been perfected process. So when you read, it's the same meaning. Having been determined as perfect, having been perfected is the same meaning. So when you read uh, um, Hebrews 5, 5 through 11, you will not fall into blasphemy thinking that Christ went through a process by which he started imperfect and ended up perfect. The opposite is true. Christ was deemed to be perfect by the, by the perfecting inspection system. He was always perfect. So you stay away from blasphemy once you know that. Anyway, that's an aside. Unfortunately, the vast majority of those who interpret Hebrews 5, 5 through 11, they fulfill verse 11. 
verse 11 says, you're dull of hearing, which means you're essentially stupid. And you end up with some weird idea that Christ is not God by reading that. Uh, but I, I digress, don't I? I rant. happens to me. As no lepers were healed until Jesus God, and I say Jesus God because there is no comma in Acts 2.32. If you want to put a hyphen, you can, but I prefer that you put nothing. As no lepers were healed until Jesus God started flooding the Pharisees with healed lepers, likewise is the sign of the taking of the donkey. It is the same thing in the sense that it had never occurred. No one had ever ridden a donkey into Jerusalem. A donkey foal, the sign of Zechariah 9.9. Let me be specific about that. The king upon the foal of a donkey, the lamb of the Passover over the unwritten, unridden foal, the blood of the lamb covering the donkey foal. That's what's happening there, as you know from last week. That hadn't ever been seen until Christ as he enters Jerusalem in the Passover week. So I have these two positions side by side. Leviticus 14 and Zechariah 9.9, first time they ever occur. And the reason they're occurring is the same person is doing both of them. And the multitudes were astonished. And as soon as they see Christ, and he does, he takes time on his way into Jerusalem and he he heals lepers on the way. And as soon as they see him on the donkey, foal, they begin screaming, save us now. Because they recognize this is something extraordinary happening here. Save us now. Hosanna, right? And that's when we started asking some basic questions. We know that a huge mass of people is following Christ. It's Passover. Jerusalem is filled with people. Jesus God is healing people, thousands and thousands of them, of everything. That causes the sick and the blind and the lame. Now think about what is a blind person and what is a crippled person, what is a lame person. Lame obviously means no arms, no legs. He's healing people with no arms, no legs. That means he's doing what? He's growing arms and legs. Imagine how astonished you would be, how astonished all of us would be, if we saw a person growing arms and legs on military veterans, essentially, because that's what he did. And that blind and the lame people and the sick, they desperately chased after him. This is all going on while he is healing lepers, and eventually now he's going to start riding on this donkey. It's all donkey full. He's putting it all together. By the way, it's a very wise decision um, for lepers to chase after Christ because most of the lepers, how are they doing in the blind and the lame department? When you have leprosy, you start losing pieces really fast. When he heals a leper, he automatically heals a lame person and a blind person. So now, after, while he's doing all of that with this huge crowd around him, astonished crowd, uh, God... Jesus God now decides it's time to send two of his disciples after a donkey mare and, a, and her foal, Matthew 20, uh, 21.2. Because now is the time that God is going to fulfill Zechariah 9.9, 9, which says, as uh, we said last week, Behold, 
and I can't emphasize that enough. When you see that word behold, it's time to say something incredible is going to be said next. Every single time, something incredible. If you don't find what's incredible after the behold, then you have to go back to the beginning until you do. Just tell yourself, I'm missing the behold. Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's incredible. Somehow that's incredible. That's astonishing. That's amazing. If you don't know why, uh, then uh, obviously, well, that's what we're trying to do here. Is try to make it as astonishing as it was. So now Christ is, is doing number one of these steps in uh, Mark 11 and 12. And to get, we, we need to get some command of this. So we asked a whole bunch of questions. How young is a foal of a donkey? How young is this donkey foal? How much does a donkey foal weigh? How big is the donkey foal? So how old is it? Is it days old? Is it months old? Do you call it a donkey foal if it's years old? You do not. So it's less than six months old for sure. Now how much? Is it a month? Two weeks? It's with its mother. It's tied together with its mother. Again, Matthew 21, 2. Make sure we know that. How much weight can a donkey foal carry? I'll give you an answer. None. If it's that young. We know from the text that clothing is put on the foal. And clothing is laid down on the path. Along with branches. First thing they do is they see Christ is on a donkey and they take their clothes off. And they start throwing branches and leaves on the path. Why are they doing that? The disciples, same thing. The disciples took their clothes off and they put the clothes on the donkey foal. How big is that donkey foal? Start imagining how big it is. I know you've seen all the Sunday school pictures of it. Start casting that aside and start start thinking for yourself. It's with its mother. What does that mean? Still nursing, absolutely, says the farmer. How old is it? It's unridden. It's told, we're told that none has ridden this foal. Why not? Nothing has been put on the foal. It hasn't been ridden and it hasn't been used for uh, baggage or, or any kind of burden carrying or load carrying. Why not? Because it's too young. If you do it, what happens? Agricultural wizard in the front row. You break it down. It, bone system, muscle systems can't take a load. This is a young Donkey, how young? How big? Can it carry a man? No. How do you ride it? So last Sunday I began to frame the prophecy uh, along these lines. I said that God is overshadowing the donkey. That's obvious from Zechariah 9.9. Once again, I have the pillar, I have Christ, the pillar of cloud himself, the one inside the pillar of cloud overshadowing a donkey, a donkey foal. And I didn't actually state it that way, but if this is a still weaning foal, and the evidence certainly implies that, then the foal, if it's still a baby, it is unrightable by human considerations. Why would God do this? What's his plan? It's never been done before in the nation of Israel. They saw it for the first time. 
Phrase this another way. Is this event, Zechariah 9-9, a miraculous event? When people saw it, they went, oh my. If this Is this a small newborn foal? Is it a couple of days old? Do I have a 15-pound baby animal here? I know the popular conventional wisdom says that it's 250, 300 pounds. But is, that what, is that what Zechariah 9 says of it? I have to reconcile that concept with Zechariah 9. We have a tendency to put our human uh, concepts. We see, uh, um, would never think that this could be that young of a, of a foal. If it's less than a month old and it's being ridden by the Lord God of creation, and is being perceived that way by the multitude of witnesses, is this why they start screaming, save us now? What did they see? Not what do you think they saw. What did they actually see? How is God doing this? And that's when I made the comment uh, last week, how much does God weigh? Which is essentially my way of saying that gravitational forces do not affect the creator of gravitational forces. If the multitude saw something astonishing, if the writing of this foal defies natural law, let me stop right there, because there's no such thing as natural law. That's what uh, the secular nations or the secular uh, uh, academics would want us to think, that there is such a thing, but there is no such thing as natural laws. All laws that govern the creation, the physical reality, are of a supernatural origin. God created and placed his system, the universe, the physical reality, uh, is all designed to be subject to specific conditions. Everything that governs us is a supernatural uh, origin, a supernatural event, if you will. My point is, did the multitude observe the suspension of God's universal law? Is that what they saw? In this case, did Jesus display his authority over gravitational phenomena? And did everybody notice it? Which is why I asked last week, again, how much does God weigh? God is not subject to his law. We are subject to his law. All physical things are subject to his physical laws. He is not. Jesus proves this to be the case continually. He did it all the time. You know, you could start thinking of places where Christ did illustrate clearly as he could that he is not subject to the physical reality. He walked through people. They surrounded him. He walked through them. Straight through them as if they didn't exist physically. Where do they exist, by the way? Where do you exist? How did you get existence? What happens to your existence? Nothing happens to your existence, in case you didn't know. But where do you exist? How did you come into existence? God can walk through your existence. Consider that when you begin to recognize what Jesus is doing. For example... Let's keep going here. What's required to stop wind? He walked through people and he stopped wind. What's required to stop wind? What do I got to do to stop it? How much understanding of the global 
climate system is necessary to stop wind in one spot. If I stop it in Spinard, what happens to Muldoon, right? That's not a joke for anybody, but you, you guys realize that. The Internet is now going, why is that funny? It may not be funny. But just, now just consider waves, tidal forces, into your implications of wind. If wind and waves are immediately interrupted in what area, and, and I'm sorry, in one area, what happens to the other areas? Can I interrupt wind somewhere and not have it affect something else? What is required to control the climate or the weather, whichever definition you prefer? Does solar activity affect the climate? If I change the temperature, do I have to change the sun's output in order to change the weather? This is back to where I am in Joshua. I've got to stop the universe, right? What does it take to stop the universe? I have to stop everything in the universe for Joshua to have more time or less time, whatever the case may have. That, by the way, I have the position that Joshua wanted it to be dark, not light. Cold, not hot. He's in a war. last thing he wants is to be seen and be hot. point is, is that in order to stop the rotation of the sun or the earth are both in concert, I have to stop all kinds of things, don't I? Let's go back to wind and waves. If I'm going to shut the wind down, what do I shut down? How do I do it? And it's an extraordinary problem, isn't it? I I submit that the omnipotence and omniscience are necessary to control the the weather. You've got to know where all the weather is and what all the weather is doing at any particular time. Because it all has a cause and effect. Newton's law, right? All actions result in counteractions. You've got to anticipate every consequences of manipulating the weather in one place. So who can do that? Who can stop the wind? Anyway, the, the Lord God of creation is riding a donkey foal because of Exodus 13.13, 13, like we said last week. Let me put that on the board for you. Exodus 13.13 13 tells you why he's riding the donkey foal. By the way, Lot's wife is where again? The pillar of salt is where? Hmm. Exodus 13, 13, and also Exodus 13, oh my goodness, I'm going to say 40, 20, well, I don't remember. It's also later on in Exodus, oh no, 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 it's 34, that's what it is. Exodus 34, 19 through 20. That is why he is riding, that and, and Zechariah 9.9 is why he's riding the donkey foal. He put those into his scripture. The only way a donkey foal is allowed to live, the firstborn foal of the donkey, especially the male, the only way it is allowed to live is if I kill a lamb and, and that redeems the foal. So I have to have a dead lamb for the firstborn donkey foal. Exodus 13.13. So that's what he's doing. He is going to be the dead lamb that redeems the foal that he is riding on. So what does the foal, who does the foal represent, right? And so while doing so, while he is demonstrating that he is the lamb on Passover who is over the foal, while he's demonstrating that he is fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, in Exodus 34, 19 through 20, and Exodus 13, 13, while he is doing that, he, is he again demonstrating his jurisdiction over gravity? Is he doing it simultaneously? So if you didn't get the references to Exodus 13 and 34, 
in Zechariah 9.9, did you look at a guy that's riding a, a baby donkey and go, holy mackerel, honey child, how's he doing this? If he has jurisdiction over gravity, then what is he? Who is he? How do you have jurisdiction? How do you have sovereign control over gravity? There's only one way you have it. You must be the what? The maker of it. You're the one that makes gravity in order to overcome gravity. I know you watch comic book movies. Movies have disintegrated into into comic books now, and they're no longer. There's no reality in movies. When when I was young. Let's talk about when I was young for a couple of hours, shall we? Or not? But when I was young, movies had a tendency to be about realism, realistic things. There wasn't flying people and all the rest of this nonsense. Yes, preach it, brother. Yes, indeed. But uh, if he is sovereign over gravity, he is the author, the creator of gravitational forces. He makes it work. I found Luke's account of the donkey to be of particular interest. Uh, Luke 19.34 says that they, the two guys, the two disciples, brought the firstborn male donkey foal to Christ. They threw their own clothes on the colt, and then they set Christ on the donkey foal. That fascinated me when I first read it. I thought, wow, isn't that interesting? Why'd they do that? Is he, does he need help? No, he doesn't need help to get on the donkey. He has control of gravity. He does not need help. But this is what he wants. So they bring him the foal. They say, okay, let's put our clothes on it. I can imagine how tiny this donkey is. I have the tiny donkey view. It's a 15-pound animal. And it is uncontrollable. And it wants its mother. And a lot of people recognize that Zechariah 9.9, by the way, requires that this be a weaning, tiny, colt, donkey, baby. And so they say he really rode the mare. But Zechariah 9.9 doesn't give you that choice, nor does Exodus 13.13 or 34.19-20. says it has to be that firstborn colt. But why this really intriguing... Detail. Why did the disciples lift God onto the unredeemed firstborn male donkey? Why? And, and they take their clothes off before they do it. That makes sense, by the way. Removing their clothing, removing their covering, removing their garments, right? That's a Genesis 3.21 reference. That's what God did to Adam and Eve, remove the garments. So that makes perfect sense. The removal of the fig leaves and the blood covering from the lamb in Genesis 3.21 is exactly what I have coming right here. I have the removal of the garments or the removal of the fig leaves and I have the blood covering of the lamb over the donkey. But why did they put their clothes on the donkey? And then why did God have them lift him? You guys set me on this donkey. Though I control gravity. I, and I got lots of questions. How many disciples I got again? How many people are here? I got lots of disciples, don't I? How many of them came over to lift God? Who went first? Here, 
I left God. Was it just the two that removed or retrieved the uh, mayor, that abducted the mayor, that took the mayor and the foal? So I have the abduction here. Is it only the two that did that? Or did the others participate? Is this ceremonial? We've got to, did they understand that they're doing Zechariah 9-9 here? John's going, no way do they understand this. I'm with John. He's right. They didn't have a clue what's going on. And it says so, by the way. They didn't understand a thing. <laughs> so they're clueless, and they're going to put God on this foal, and they don't know why they're doing it. Maybe they think he needs help. Maybe they think the foal is going to collapse underneath him because it's a baby. What's he doing? You guys go get the mare and the foal. Put the foal here. Put your clothes on top of it. I'm going to ride it into Jerusalem. What? How's this going to happen? We're going to have to prop him up, kind of hold him, and we'll pretend he's riding the foal. What are they thinking when they're doing this? But I'm, I've got men lifting up the king of Israel. God himself in the flesh. The king is lifted up. Jesus Christ is being lifted up. He is being raised. Whenever Jesus Christ is being lifted up, being raised, what am I referencing? That is the crucifixion, right? So is there a crucifixion symbolism here? That's why I ask, is this ceremonial? Usually when Jesus Christ is lifted up, one must return to where in the Bible? You go back immediately to Numbers 21 where I have Moses lifting up the brazen brazen serpent, right? That's the foreshadowing of the crucifixion. John 3.14 And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, more so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I have Christ being lifted up and they think they're going to set him on a 15-pound donkey pole. And they had no idea why or what they're doing. So we can anticipate Luke 19.34 has something to do with John 3.14. And we'll get into that in the coming weeks. But Christ may have demonstrated his authority over his laws to his disciples here. You see, the question becomes, how many disciples does it take to lift God upon a newborn Donkey full. I know you're thinking, how many people to change the light bulb joke? But how many people does it take to put God on a donkey full? And I'm going with newborn. It can barely walk. It's not, it doesn't appear to be happy necessarily. But I doubt that. I think animals have an unmistakable understanding of whose presence they're in. Unlike us. Again, I offer Exodus 13, 13, and 34, 20 as incontrovertible, incontestable proof that this was an unredeemed male firstborn foal of a very young age. Otherwise, Zechariah 9, 9 makes no sense, as does the Passover context that we're in. He's doing this in a Passover context. It's the Passover festival. He's going into Jerusalem on Passover week. See lecture 208. So, repeating the question, what did the multitude actually see? We have to remember John 12. So, let's read John 12 in case you don't remember. Start at verse 14. 
See, this account is in all four Gospels, remember? That means you have to go to all four Gospels and put them all together and accumulate them and look at them all as one total context and put all the pieces. You can't do the puzzle without all the pieces. This has got a few pieces. The next day, a great multitude. How great is a great multitude? Do I have tens of thousands of people here? How big is the city of Jerusalem? How much can it hold? We can figure that out, by the way, by the cemetery. Millions. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, that's the Passover week, that's the unleavened bread, first fruits, right? When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees. Now we know the leaves are palm trees and branches are from palm trees and went out to meet him and cried, Hosanna, which is save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, how young is young, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey colt. That's extraordinary. What's happening is extraordinary. It's got a behold in front of it. If you don't have an an extraordinary description of what's happening when Christ is on that donkey foal, you do not fulfill that behold. You in big wampum trouble. His disciples, this verse 16 is my favorite verse in John 12. His disciples did not understand these things. Makes sense to me at first. So they didn't understand them at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. So, to repeat, how young is young? What things did the disciples not understand at first? They had to wait till he was glorified before they understood him. They did not understand finding a young, foal, male, firstborn donkey. They didn't understand why he even wants a firstborn male donkey. They didn't understand Exodus 13, 13. They didn't understand Exodus 34, 19 through 20. They didn't understand Zechariah 9, 9. They had no idea what was going on. Then they had no idea why they're lifting him up and setting him on this donkey. They don't know how the donkey colt is supporting him. They don't know how anything is moving. And they don't know why they're doing it, Zechariah 9, 9. They didn't understand the Passover redeeming blood covering aspects of this. They didn't know that in order to redeem a donkey foal, they had to kill a lamb. They didn't know that Christ was coming twice, first time as Savior, second time as King. They thought there was one coming of Christ. They didn't know when you're saying, here comes the King, that he wasn't coming as King. They didn't understand the clothing and the garments all the way back to Genesis 3. They didn't know why they're putting palm branches down. They're just doing it. They didn't understand Psalm 118.26 to save us now. And all of that that I just gave you somehow is related directly to the resurrection of Lazarus. That's how it all fits together. I realize that this is seems disjointed today. But as a highly trained professional, my goal is to bring it all together for you here in a few minutes. The disciples didn't understand any of that until they saw the glorification of Christ. 
So now we have to define what glorification of Christ is. You will not understand any of this unless you have seen the glorification of Christ. So if you have not seen the glorification of Christ, you will not understand any of what has happened here with regard to the taking of the donkey. When I run into people and they tell me, I don't understand this taking of the donkey thing, I just saw a movie about it. The donkey weighed 450 pounds. I go, well, you obviously have never seen the glorification of Christ. You don't know what the glorification of Christ means. I'm going to make the case that until you understand the glorification of Christ, all of this kind of stuff will mean nothing to you. You'll never get it. Now, present company accepted. I'm saying that for all our vast Internet audience of thousands and thousands. Okay, six, eight or so, whatever it is. Christ glorifies, glorified means one thing. It means that Jesus Christ is revealed as the Lord God Almighty himself manifested in the flesh. If you don't know that Jesus Christ is glorified, means that he is revealed as God himself, the creator of all things. If you don't know that Christ is God, you will never understand the donkey. You'll never understand, you hardly understand anything. That's If you don't have that foundation first, he's God, he's always God. There is never a time when he is not God. If you ever think there's a time that Christ is not God in any way, you will not get the donkey or anything else for that matter. You'll be clueless in your Christian walk the rest of your life and then you'll be raptured in shame. You'll still be saved, raptured in shame. Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum used to say all the time, and I, I had disagreements with him over this because of the thief on the cross. But he'd say all the time that uh, uh, there is no salvation apart from sound doctrine of Christ. If you don't understand that Christ is God all the time, never not God, you have no sound doctrine. You have blasphemy masquerading as sound doctrine. So you've got to stop there, or start there, or you'll never get anywhere. Okay, so once they realized who Jesus Christ was, when they saw the glorification, when they realized they were in the presence of Creator God Himself, who was not subject to time, not subject to gravity, not subject to physical reality, this is the one to whom all things exist are perceived in His mind. When they realized who they really were dealing with, that's Christ glorified, then they began to understand these things. And his riding on a foal and his resurrection of Lazarus, they have an intimate connection that is understood only after one grasps the totality, the absoluteness of the Godhood of Jesus Christ. Now, now, once you find out, figure out that this is God doing all of these things, God himself, you can figure out how the foal and Lazarus go together. Because they do in John. That's why John does it. So what was demonstrated by the riding of an unredeemed, uh, unweaned donkey colt? How does that demonstration unite with the raising from the dead of Lazarus? Well, let's talk about Lazarus. Let's have some more medicine. Let's talk about Lazarus. I have an over-enlarged tongue, a speech impediment. Please, on the Internet, do not write me any more letters saying, we don't understand you. I assume they're talking about my syntax and not my... Presentation. Could be either one. (laughs) How does the demonstration 
of riding a baby donkey colt. That's redundant, I know. It's purposely redundant. You can be redundant if you know you're redundant. How does riding an unredeemed, unweaned donkey colt unite with the raising of the dead of Lazarus? Start thinking about Lazarus. What happened at Lazarus? What happened at the donkey colt? Lazarus, remember, I hope you do, he was completely covered. He was bound hand and foot. How tight was he wrapped? He's completely covered, bound hand and foot in burial clothes. So he's covered in what? Clothes. Anything else covered in clothes? Donkey coat. They're both covered in clothes. So far, so good, right? Lazarus had to be unwrapped. Why did they, he have to be unwrapped? He had to have his grave clothes removed, just like got to remove fig leaves. Had to have those grave clothes removed. Lazarus's, that's hard for me to say, Lazarus's, could I say Lazari? No. Lazarus's death, there are two Lazaruses. Would that be Lazari? Yeah, probably not. I'm going to go with it. Uh, my new book. Lazarus's death coverings had to be stripped off. Adam's death covering had to be stripped off and covered with lamb's blood, right? I can make the case very easily that those animals sacrificed to cover Adam and Eve were lambs. It becomes obvious, I think, in Scripture, just with the Passover festival. How did Lazarus come out of the tomb? It says in John 11:44 that Lazarus came out of the tomb. Let's ask a simple question. Did Lazarus, remember he is bound hand and foot, wrapped tight, we're not talking about your teenage sons, wrapped tight, did he come out, did he walk out? Let's just start there. He didn't walk out, did he? Did he come out under his, did he roll out? Is that your... How did he come out of the tomb? He's been in the tomb for four days. Somebody has got to go find his soul, his spirit. Somebody has got to completely restore the physical body that's in corruption, that is rotting, and put them back together perfectly. The same guy that has to grow limbs, spit in the dirt and make eyeballs and stick them in. The same guy that has to do all of that has got to totally restore that dead body and combine it with the correct soul, living soul. Fix the machine, put the operator back in, and make it work. In the meantime, it's, is it getting any air? Have you ever seen what they do to these bodies? They're wrapped in chemicals, hundreds of pounds of chemicals. It makes paper mache look like paper mache. That's funny. But they have, he's wrapped. Can he breathe? Can he move? How does he get out? It says he comes out. So what did the witnesses, the multitude that saw the resurrection of Lazarus, roll away the stone, what did they see next? It says Lazarus came out of the tomb. People go in and get him? doesn't say that. It says he came out. How did he come out? What laws did Christ suspend? What did the multitude of witnesses see? Because whatever they saw, when they put it together with the donkey colt, 
they started saying, save us now. We've seen enough. Save us now. We've seen a donkey colt, and we've seen Lazarus. Save us now. What laws did Christ suspend? Were they, they, were they the same laws as the writing of the foal? Where else in Scripture, by the way, does Jesus Christ display his supremacy over his creation? Where else in Scripture do I have death and blood covering of the Lamb to save us now? Where else is all of that present? Well, I have a suggestion. You can think of one. Can anybody think of one where he suspends gravitational law? What's that? Well, he definitely does it on his ascension and his resurrection. Absolutely he does. But some people will say that's not counting. That's not fair. His ascension so he can defy gravitational. He can fly, can't he? Of course he can. He's outside of time. He's outside of physical reality simultaneously. Well, let's just uh, let's start going to John six uh, fifteen. This is fun. Once again, start asking questions, just as you did with the donkey pole. Don't assume that you have any idea what this verse or this passage is about. Six fifteen through twenty one. The first rule of the Gospel of John is what? What is John trying to tell you to do? Every word he writes, what's he trying to get you to do? He's trying to get you to understand Christ glorified. What's that mean? He's trying to get you to understand that, that he's trying to prove the absolute, constant, never-ceasing deity of Christ. It's the singular focus of the, John's entire gospel. If you don't find, every time you read something, he's proving that Christ is God. If you don't find that when you're reading John, you're failing. And he's mad at you somewhere. You're wasting your time reading his book and he's screaming at you. Well, he's not. That's just me screaming at you. John 6.15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived, oh my goodness, when God perceives things, that makes them real, by the way. We'll get to that later. That's George Berkeley. When Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed away to the mountain by himself alone. God departed, Christ departed. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They went down after he departed. Got into a boat and went over, to, over the sea towards Capernaum. And it was already dark. And Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose with a great wind and blowing. How great is the wind? He says, great, how great is great? 50 mile an hour? We get that every, every Friday here. How great is great. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, fear not. God has a way of saying fear not all the time. You notice that? Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the, at the land where they were going. How fast is immediately? How far away were they? So let's go over that again, Okay. Let me repeat something. He departed. God departed. He's alone at the mountain. Disciples went down to the waters. It's dark. Jesus did not come to them. There's a great wind and blowing. They're rowing. Not going so good. They saw Jesus coming to them, 
They're afraid of him. He said, fear not. It's me. God. He's revealed to them as God. And they willingly receive him. Who willingly receives him? The Jews. The second time, he comes. He leaves, he comes. Second time, they willingly receive him. And immediately, they're to safety. Immediately, they're saved. Obviously, this is about uh, Christ who advents in his relationship to the nation of Israel, the sign of the wife, the faithful remnant. They see Christ's second coming. He does not become king. He departs. The sea is a symbol of death, just like the Red Sea. The Red Sea is parted. They're able to go through. The Red Sea falls on top of the, of the uh, Pharaoh and his troops, just like the, uh, the ark is saved uh, from the sea, the judgment of the sea in time of Noah. This is a time of darkness. Christ has not yet returned. The sea has risen. The great wind has come. There's turmoil that clearly is a reference to tribulation. Those in the boat see the second coming of Christ. Fear not, I am God. That's John's point. It's what he's doing. They accept him willingly. Immediately they're saved. Okay? Now, got that one? Let's go to... Oops. How am I doing? Pretty good. Go to Matthew 6. Terithathy has thrown nothing yet. How, many, how much time I got? Oh, until Eric comes back. Okay. Let's read this really fast then. 6.22. Oh! find it again. No, that's not where I want to go. Is it? No, it should be 12, Matthew 12, right? 14? Where am I? There I am, 14.22. Sorry, I'm still in John 6. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. They're going to the other side. We're going on this side, we're going to go to the other side. The other side is where? You're immediately saved when you get there, right? While he sent the multitude away, and then he had after, and when he had sent the multitude away, he went up the mountain to by himself to pray. He ascended. Now when evening came, he was alone there. So when the darkness came, he's alone. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. The wind was great. Now in the fourth watch of the night, 3 a.m., 6 a.m., Hebrew time, when Jesus went to them walking on the sea, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, in case you didn't notice that he was walking on the sea, what laws is he suspended? He doesn't suspend them. He's outside of them. He can do whatever he wants. I get so frustrated. People say this very stupid thing all the time, and I just want to hit them with a bat. Well, before Christ was resurrected, uh, well, I mean, after he was resurrected, he could walk through walls. 
Well, before he was resurrected, he could walk through people. What are you, an idiot? Yes. Answer yes. There's no difference between God at any time. He's always God at all times. Never make the blasphemous error of declaring him not to be God at any time. If you've done that, you've You are in blasphemy and you do not understand the text. If you start correctly with the correct understanding that he's always God, it'll open up. You'll always find out what it really means as opposed to some silly concept that is very popular in the church today. Okay. And they cried out for fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, fear not. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Save me now. Now you're back to the donkey, aren't you? And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? And what did they doubt? What was he doubting? He didn't know who Christ really was. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. He stopped the wind. If he stops the wind here, what's happened elsewhere? And they... And then those who were in the boat, who's that? The disciples came and worshipped him, saying, truly, you are God. I left out some words there that confuse people, but uh, that's the meaning of it. So let me repeat. What did was seen when Lazarus came out? What did we see when Christ was above, overshadowing, lifted on the foal? What did we see when Christ was above, overshadowing the water? Right? Peter, as you know, is a piece of the Simeon prophecy. I have a Simeon that is, that's hearing for Jews. The word means hearing. Can't hear. In Genesis 42, Simeon is imprisoned by Yahshua, Joseph. Same meaning as Yeshua. Luke 2.25, Simeon the prophet. He is holding up the Christ child. So I have those two Simeons together. I have Matthew 27.32, Simeon the Cyrenian. That's the reason he grabs the crossbeam, because he's part of the four-part or five-part Simeon prophecy. I have Simon or Simeon Peter in John 21, where he answers three questions wrong. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Actually, he answers the first two wrong. He answers the third one right. When he gets it right, then he's saying, you know all things. Who knows all things? Who's omniscient? God. Finally, he says, you're God. Once he says, you're God, then Christ says, okay, now you can come to work. It has nothing to do with this kind of love or that kind of love or the, who's the, the, that nonsense. It has nothing to do with that. It's part of the Simeon process. So here I have Simeon Peter comes out, cries out to the returning Messiah, save me now. So who does he represent in Scripture? Who says save me now? After the tribulation. The Jews do. Simeon Peter denies the Godhood and the Messiahship of Christ three times. Finally gets it right. John 21. So note the Simeon prophecy that is here in Matthew 14. But for today, let's ask just a few fun questions. How far was Christ from Peter? Gotcha. How far was Christ from Peter when Peter says, save me now? How far? 
In other words, how close did Israel get to Christ before they screamed, save me now? See what I did there? How many steps did Peter take out of the boat? What do you think? How many steps you given him? I'm getting out of the boat. I'm going to go towards God. I don't think he's God. Why did you doubt I was God? I don't know. I'm an idiot. How many steps do I get? Kathy says three. I'm going to tell you it ain't very many. <laughs> Rebecca says one. <laughs> Who's taking the most steps here, God or Israel? Who's coming towards who, really? Israel ever coming towards God? Well, they might get out of the boat. Who came to who is what I'm saying. Describe now for me Christ walking on this sea. How tall are the waves? I have a great wind. How tall are the waves? I've been in tall waves. They made me vomit over and over and over again. The kid on the boat, we were all halibut fishing. Get on the boat had Captain Crunchberry cereal as we were leaving the dock. We get into 15-foot swells, and out came Captain Crunchberry. That was not a good day for me. I've never forgotten Captain Crunchberry. I think that they're no longer allowed to sell that cereal because of that experience that I had. In any event, how tall are the waves? How tall do you think they are? They're rowing through this. Now I'm making much headway. This is a symbol. This is a type, if you will. This is representing the tribulation, the great tribulation. And Christ is walking on top of these waves. 30 footers. How big are they? It's dark. It's really dark. Huge waves, strong winds, darkness. How did they see the pillar of fire? Duh. How did they see Christ? He's the pillar of fire. He's inside the pillar of fire. He's the second person of the triune Godhood. He is light itself. How did they see him? He's light. Easy to see him. Notice the one who is above the waters causes the waves and the winds to cease. Causes Lazarus to come out even though he's bound head and foot and rides on top of a 10, 15 day old colt. Some would say seven days old. Some would say two or three. You decide how old you think that colt is and we'll cover it next week.